Second Peter chapter two, beginning in verse four. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels, who are greater in power and might, do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with the man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has but it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how amazing it is and how supernatural it is. Lord, we want to be fashioned by it and made more like Christ through it. We trust that your spirit will accomplish that in us. We yield our hearts to you, Lord. Speak to us, whatever you want to speak to us. We want to hear from you. And we want to obey what you, what you tell us to obey by your grace and by your power. So use these verses for your glory in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We've been looking at uh, this book of Second Peter. Much like uh, the book of First Peter, they are dealing with persecution from without. Uh, Caesar Nero is ramping up the persecution at this time. Ultimately, it would... It would claim the lives of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, who's writing this book. 
We've also seen in the, it, what's unique to this second epistle that wasn't in the first epistle, and this is what we're mainly looking at today, and we looked at it a little bit last week, is the, the threat from within, threat from within the camp, so to speak, the threat of false teaching and the threat of apostasy. And also in Second Peter, as we've seen, Peter knows his time is short. And sometimes when you know that you're about to die, you call those that you love and you say the most important things that you could possibly say to them, things that you don't ever want them to forget. And I know Peter had a supernatural love for Jesus' sheep. He remembers all the way back when Jesus restored him, saying, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, tend my lambs. He knew that, that they needed to be cared for. He knew that there was great difficulty that they were facing, and he knew that there, was, there were great threats coming uh, their way, and, and they were in the middle of something pretty significant. So he couldn't mince words. Peter is not, in, we've already read the verses, I mean, Peter, tell me what you really think. I mean, talk about being blunt. I mean, he doesn't hold anything back. And I love that about God's word. I love the clarity of it. I need it to be crystal clear from my thick skull. Even though it pierces through bone and marrow, we know that, even as thick as your skull can be, but I need it to be clear. And I love the fact that it's so blunt and so, the, the perspective that it gives is so perfect for what we need. And, and God isn't afraid of what his poll numbers are. He's not afraid of what people think of him and what, what their assessment is of his word. He says what he says. He means it. He stands behind it. And where else in this world could you get that pure perspective that breaks through all the lies of mankind? What other place you're going to get where, he, where it tells the truth about mankind? That we're sinners. That we need a savior. And that we shouldn't be impressed with ourselves. That we, we, we can't save ourselves. We can't save anybody else. For sure. So we've seen, as we saw in chapter 1, him talk about that we are wealthy with at least two things. That we've been given his divine power that has given us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. And secondly, we've been given precious promises. And they allow us to walk in his divine nature, which means walk in his divine, godly, pure, holy character. And he loves to have his children live like him. When you have a child and you're, you're a good example, you want them to, not if you're a bad example, you don't want them to follow, but when you're a good example, you want them to follow in your footsteps. And it blesses you to see that. So he tells us multiple times in his word to be holy for he is holy and be holy because we're his children. And so this, this you know, we, we saw last week that uh, he's, emphasized that we need to not just rely upon the apostles' eyewitness accounts, that they saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, metamorphosized and, and, and revealing his glory, but also we saw in verses 19 through 21 that we have God's word. He said, and you may want to look back there, he says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, it didn't come from man. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved 
by the Holy Spirit. So as wonderful as his eyewitness testimony is, he was saying, you have something even greater than I have. I mean, I share it too, but you don't have the eyewitness testimony, but you have the prophetic scriptures. And so he said, that is something that you need to value. God knew that that not everybody was going to have an eyewitness testimony of the Lord Jesus. But everybody does have God's word in the sense of the prophetic scriptures. Last week as we begin chapter 2, Let's begin in verse 1 and get a running start on our verses. He says uh, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will, not might, will be false teachers among you, who will secretly, that's how they do it, bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways. Not a few, many. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you or make merchandise of you with deceptive words or plastic words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. So we began, as we saw last week, to talk about these false teachers, these false prophets. He's going to continue all the way through to the end of the, the chapter. And he says, they will come in. You know, a church that's loving and gracious and accepting, it especially is easy for people to come in and be welcomed and infiltrate if they have bad motives, if they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and you know, for here, related to our fellowship, we really haven't had much of that yet. I've had a couple little times where I've had to tell people to stop, uh, you know, sharing these certain doctrines that were not in line with Scripture, that were trying to make an influence in the body. But for the most part, we haven't had that yet, and we're blessed to have had that. Let us know if you suspect a wolf. If you see a, someone that looks like a sheep eating a sheep uh, and not grass, uh, let us know, and we will address that. It's our job. It's, our, it, it's not fun, but it's our responsibility to, to do that. So we haven't really deal, dealt with that. At, at this point, and I'm thankful for that. Now, Peter, what he's going to do is, I'm just giving us a little vantage point for the rest of the, the chapter here. Peter is anticipating some objections that he could have gotten then, and surely people could raise now. And those objections are, God is a God of love, and so he won't judge anybody. And secondly, because we don't witness people that are not teaching correct doctrine now, reaping the consequences of that, that must mean that they're never going to reap the consequences of that, and they're going to get away with it. And that's false. He absolutely obliterates those two things. And he's going to give us three examples to demonstrate God's track record in judging. He has a very consistent, efficient, proficient track record in judging when judging needs to happen. He's just. And he's going to mention the fallen angels. He's going to mention the wicked world of Noah's day. And he's going to mention Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he needs to also, in addition to this, give an encouragement. And he's going to say, God knows how to judge. But also, and what these believers need to hear and what we need to hear, is that he also knows how to deliver those who are his. They needed to hear that because they're going through incredible persecution right now. And some of them, I'm sure, identified that these false teachers were false teachers. And they needed to know that they weren't going to get away with this. 
And they need to know that God has all the available grace to sustain us and carry us forward until we're someday with him in heaven and and, and all of the hardship and difficulty is going to end. So he begins in verse 4 with the first group who who were judged. Look, Look with me there. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, we're told that the sons of God came and they were, um, you know, uh, sexually engaged with women and there were offspring from that. Now, whether they were just demons that possessed bodies that did that or they were actually demons who somehow took on a physical body and were able to do there's great debate in terms of who the sons of God are and how, how, the, how they demonically were able to accomplish that and to sin in that way. I'm not going to get into all of that now. But the point is, he's saying, these, these are the demons uh, about whom he's speaking. He's speaking about these demons that fell and they, they were enchained and they were, um, they're being held right now, uh, being reserved for judgment. And so that's what he's saying. God did not spare those angels who sinned. Remember, there, was, there were all good angels in the beginning, and then a third of them were deceived by Lucifer, cast down to earth. And that's, what, that's who demons are. They're fallen angels. And some of them back in Genesis chapter 6 in that time, they did some horrific things, and God put them in chains. Jesus proclaimed uh, his victory to them when he was in Hades, subsequent to his death on the cross, and in those three and a half days, or those three days at that time, but they still haven't been judged yet. The great white throne judgment, everybody's going to be resurrected the, and everybody's going to be judged according to their works, talking about non-believers. And believers are already going to be with God in, in, in heaven. So he says, this isn't new. These false teachers that are going to be judged by God, there's a history of, that God has of judging. So don't think that they're not going to get away with it because God never, I mean, he always holds those accountable for their deeds. And this is the first example, these fallen angels. The second example is in uh, the ungodly uh, ancient world in Noah's day in verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, so Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So God did not spare the ancient world. But also, so obviously that, and I hope that they find Noah's Ark someday. That'd be great, where it's confirmed this is Noah's Ark. On top, those mountains there. Big ships don't get on the top of mountains (laughs) just by any way. They get up there because of the water getting up that high. And and that, that would be a testimony to the world that God judges sin. And that's why I want it to be discovered. I mean, he may not allow it to be discovered, that's fine. But I would love that. But here, God judged this, the ancient world. He saved Noah. And, and one of the things he's doing with the second example, and he'll do it with the third example, he's not just using those examples to show that God knows how to judge. He's doing that, but he's doing something else that's supposed to be encouraging to these believers. Well, what he's also doing at the same time is, is showing how they relate to these believers, because these believers have some things in common with Noah. These believers have something in common with Lot. And so he uses verbiage that c- communicates that. And I believe that's why he says, a preacher of righteousness. They were preachers of righteousness. We're preachers of righteousness, carrying the gospel. And, and so he says, bringing in the flood on the world of 
the ungodly. So he's saying, yes, God knows how to judge. He judged the ancient world, but he also knows how to save. He also knows how to preserve. He also knows how to deliver. He did that with Noah. He was a preacher of righteousness. You're preachers of righteousness. You're carrying the gospel. He knows how to deliver you too. So that's kind of what he's getting at. This is the world that God describes in Genesis of what the condition of the world was like when he judged this world. Let me see if this sounds a little bit familiar. Widespread sexual immorality. Widespread unnatural sexual practices. Demonic involvement and influence in sexual practices. Violence all over the world. And they were given over to evil imaginations continually, trying to think up what's the greatest, the, you know, the next great expression of wickedness out there. Sound, sound a little bit familiar? That's our world. And this world thinks that it's not going to be judged. It thinks because, see, it thinks the same thing that these believers could have thought, that these false teachers, because they're not currently judged, they're not going to be judged. And that's what this world thinks. Because God hasn't done anything yet, it must mean that he'll never do anything. And that's false. There's going to be a seven-year tribulation that happens after the church is snatched out of here. And the last three and a half years are going to be, Jesus said, they're not going to be like anything that's ever happened up to that point. And, and Jesus likened his coming to the days of Noah. And that's what's interesting. He's, he's speaking to disciples here in Luke 17. I want to read it to you. And as it was in the days of Noah... So it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So he says they ate, they drank, they married. It's basically they're going through their life apart from God, just their regular way of living and all their, their wickedness and so forth. And then he talks in, the, in Luke 17 in, in the, related to the days of, of Lot. It's almost as if Peter was there listening at that time. He was. He says, it says in verse 28 of Luke 17, Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who was on the housetop And his goods are in the house. Let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. Why would he say to the disciples, remember Lot's wife? Because Lot's wife turned around and she was turned into a pillar of salt. She looked back. He's saying to those disciples, don't look back. Don't look back. I'm going to judge this world. Don't look back to your old ways as if there's something appealing and something valuable back there in your old life. Do you think that today? It's a searching question for all of us. I've walked with the Lord almost 24 years. And I think back in my old life, there's nothing about that that, I, that objectively I could look at and say there was anything worth living for. That's when, when, when Jesus said, you know, who do you say that I am and so forth. And he's saying all these hard things. And, and he says, are you going to leave too? Because people were leaving in droves at that point. And they said, Lord, where else are we to go? Guess who said that? It was Peter. Peter said, where else are we to go? There's nowhere to go. There is no place to go. It's a mirage. It's, it's, it's an illusion that there's a legitimate place to go once you start following the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to 
close off every outlet back, burn every bridge, make it, I mean, we came through a door in a, in a room, we need to close that door, we need to uh, drywall over it, paint it, make it, like, not even where we can even see that there ever was a door there. And we, we see at the end of the chapter what it's like for these false teachers that have, have done that, have gone back. So it, it, it's, it's, he says, don't forget Lot's wife. Don't think about your old life. Now, in our passage here in verse 6, he gets to the days of Lot, just like Jesus did. He says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. So he says he condemned them to destruction. It's God's right. He's the creator. He can do whatever he wants. He condemned them to construction, not construction, destruction, making them an example for all that, that look to live an ungodly life. Look at God's judgment. Look at how he is displeased with that behavior and he he renders judgment very swiftly and delivered righteous lot. Now, why does he say that? Again, I think it's he's saying to these believers, you have something in common with Noah. You have something in common with Lot. He was, a right, he was righteous. Now, there are some issues about why he would even want to be that close to all, all of that. And that's a whole other discussion. But God's assessment of him is that he's righteous. He's righteous Lot who was oppressed. Notice he says, oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. It's okay to say that conduct is filthy. God does. Don't be ashamed. It's filthy. And Lot was oppressed by that filthiness. And so the, 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 it's a good question for all of us. We live in this world and it's pretty bad out there. Do we sense that vexing and that oppression by the filthiness around us? Or do we have a heart that's been desensitized to it or, or worse yet, joining in with it in mass? And so we, now it's, our lives may not look that much different from those that are out there. He says a righteous person is, is bothered and affected by unrighteous living around them. But he says he's, he's, he delivered him. So just like God delivered and saved Noah, and just like God delivered Lot, he's going to deliver you, persecuted believers, that are dealing with false teachers. And he's going to deliver us. He's going to deliver us from this world. Verse 8. For that righteous man, calls him righteous again, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And then he gets to the thesis statement of, his, of the chapter in verse 9. This wraps up the whole chapter 2. You can mar- mark in your Bible if you'd like. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations or trials and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And the key word in verse 8 is the word how. That's the key word. The Lord knows how. See, that's the question that we have when we're being buffeted by persecution or we're going through difficult times or we're being dealing with temptations. It's so easy to forget how God can, can deliver me. And, and he, we believe maybe that that he can, but we don't un- believe how he can, that he knows how to do it because we don't see it. And he's saying, God knows how to do it. God knows how to deliver you. You may not know how to de- you can be delivered, but God knows how to deliver you. And 
you may not see how it's possible that these false teachers and others that are mistreating you, you may not see how God could possibly punish them and have them get what they deserve, but God does. God knows how to do it. And so we need to trust him. That's the theme of the theme verse of the chapter. He knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, and he knows how to reserve the unjust for punishment for the day of judgment. Now we get into some characteristics of these false teachers. He says, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Uncleanness means, it's a general term for sexual impurity. So they, they, have, this, they have this lust of being sexually unclean, and they despise authority. And it's talking about authority within the spirit realm. It's not talking about necessarily, although I'm sure it carries over, authority in our government and and so forth. He's going to elaborate. He says, they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now, in Jude, we're going to see that Jude criticizes those that insult uh, demon, or the, the devil and, and demonic forces and so forth. Because it says, verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might than humans do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. This is talking about de- the demonic realm. There's a hier- hierarchical arrangement in the demonic realm and even in the, uh, the angelic realm. And, and so these false teachers, they're presumptuous, which means that they act on their emotions and they're self-willed, they're stubborn, they do what they want to do, but also they insult those that are, that are in spiritual authority or the spiritual realm. They insult those things. And he says that God, the angels, in verse 11, he says, they don't do that. They're greater in, 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 than these false teachers in power and might, and they don't bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. He continues verse 12. But these, like natural brute beasts. Okay, Peter, give us some clarity there. Natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed speak evil of the things they do not understand. He's talking about the spirit realm. He just got done referring to that. They speak of those things and they slander those things. They speak evil of it. They don't understand it and will utterly perish in their own corruption. And will receive the wages of unrighteousness. Yeah, unrighteousness pays something. We reap what we sow. The wages of sin is death. Unrighteousness has a, has a wage, a minimum wage, uh, and a maximum wage, too. As those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. So it's bad enough that they carouse at night, but now they're... Their sensitivities have been dulled even more, and they've been, they're even more brazen, and they do it in the daytime, out in front of people and so forth. That's, that's, there's people that do that today, where they sin and they perform all kinds of horrific acts out in the daylight for people to see, for shock value. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. And this is interesting because they had, the, they had agape feast too. Just like we do. And they had them every week. They had them on Sunday evening. That's normally when they went to church because they worked on Sundays. And they went to church on Sunday evening and they had a meal together. It was called the love feast. And then afterward they'd have enjoy communion. And so here he says, they actually feast with you. So out, they're out doing all this during the day, doing all this uh, sexual morality and all these things. And they, but they come and then they feast 
with you. Peter knows they've infiltrated already. He's already said that they are among you. He's saying they're living totally different with when, how they look like they're living when they're, they're eating the, you know, the, the spaghetti that someone brought. Or the, maybe I don't, they probably didn't have, well, maybe they did. The Roman Empire spaghetti, you know, Italy. You know, I don't know what kind of food they had. But they had food. I'm sure they had food. I mean, Christians, we do f- food really well. I don't know if you notice that. We, we excel in food. And, and so here he says, they feast with you, but there's spots and blemishes. And when you have a spot or a blemish on a, on a piece of clothing and you can't get it out, you can't shout it out, there's no spray and wash, you can't put, you know, and you can't get it out, it, it's ruined. And that's the picture. They've ruined your feast. They've ruined the, the influence that they have with you. They've infiltrated. You know, Paul gave a great warning in Acts chapter 20, and I want to read it to you, about these kinds of people coming in. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Talk about a serious situation. I warned you night and day with tears for three years that those are going to they're going to come in, they're going to infiltrate you, they're going to teach false things, they have a self-focus, they want to draw disciples away for themselves, and he warned them about that, and that's what Peter's doing here. It's his last letter, he knows it's probably his last letter, be careful, watch over the flock. Now he continues his uh, vivid description in verse 14, he says, having eyes full of adultery. You know, we're told in scripture that we can commit adultery in our hearts by lusting after, after another person. And that's what he's saying is they have eyes full of adultery and, they, and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. So they come in and their eyes, you can't see what their eyes are full of when they come in among you. But they are, are, are enticing, notice, unstable souls. Look who's vulnerable in verse 14. Unstable souls. An unstable soul is someone that's not grounded in God's word. That isn't spiritually mature. Those people are taken advantage of all the time. We see it on Christian television. We see people ripping other people off. These false teachers that are saying that you need to sacrifice and you need to you know, give, give your money away in mass as if they, which, which they were doing it, <laughs> like they were asking other people to do it. And they're living in these mansions and having these jets and all these, these riches and so forth. And, and who are they preying on? People that, are, that know their Bible? That know that wolves, they feed on sheep? No. Those people, they don't know any better. They're, they're, they don't, they're not grounded in God's word. They don't have spiritual maturity. They fall for the verses that they say. Remember, we, we read in, in 2 Corinthians that in chapter 11 that, the, the, that Satan appears as an angel of light and his workers appear as workers of righteousness. 
They don't look like false teachers. They have the suit, they have the slick hair, the aerodynamic hair, and the wind tunnel tested hair, you know, and the makeup, and the, 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 the and he's going to get into, they have the great speech and so forth, and they fool people that aren't grounded because they're not stable, they're not mature. And that's why it's so important to feed on God's word, to know God's word, to get grounded in God's word. That's why Paul said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Why did he do that in part? So that they wouldn't be fooled when he had to leave and these wolves came in, that they would be inoculated and rendered uh, useless. Verse 15. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray. So it's not like they didn't know the right way. He's going to get into that. They knew the right way. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of of unrighteousness. Now, there are three times in the New Testament that were, were uh, introduced or, or Balaam is referred to. Here in this passage in Jude and in Revelation. And in those three passages, we're told of the heir of Balaam, the way of Balaam, and the doctrine of Balaam. And they're all very t- closely related. Now, Balaam was a prophet, and there was Balak of Midian that was threatened by the children of Israel. He wanted to hire Balaam to prophesy against the children of Israel and he was tempted by it and he tried to and he was told not to and then finally the Lord said okay you can go but don't say one word beyond what I tell you and and then he was on his way and God used a donkey his the donkey that he was riding and he came the angel of the Lord came with his sword drawn the donkey saw it uh, Balaam did not see it and they were kind of you know, moving around a bit, and he wouldn't go. He wouldn't go any further. Kind of knocked uh, Balaam's foot, kind of trapped there, and he beat him. He was just beating him and cussing him out and yelling at him. And finally, the, the donkey sat down, and then the, and then God enabled the the donkey to speak. And he said, "Haven't I been a great donkey for you all these years? And what are you beating me for? And all all of this." And then what's crazy is that he talks back to him. He's not. What are you doing talking? It's he's having an argument. With the donkey. And you know what's worse than that? He's losing. He's losing the argument to the donkey there. And so it was, we see the motivation in verse 15. He said he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He was prostituting out his gift for gain. And that's what these false teachers were doing. And he gives further commentary in verse 16 about Balaam. But was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Yeah, there was madness. He's mainly talking about him prof- thinking about prophesying against the children of Israel. That was his madness. I mean, it, it is bad that he's arguing with the donkey and losing an argument. That's madness too. But he's mainly talking about him even thinking about prophesying against the children of Israel. And every time he tried, it was four times, nothing but a blessing came out. One thing he did at the end, though, is he told Balak... Here's how you beat them. You can't beat them from without. You have to beat them from within. So have your daughters uh, entice the young men and, and, and tempt them sexually and get them to start serving their false gods. And that worked. And that's why there's a danger here, and Peter knows it, of this danger from within of these false teachers. They're being persecuted from without. That's not really working. Persecution traditionally does not work against believers. It makes us stronger. It makes us go to the Lord. It makes us more dependent upon Him. 
in the early church, even today in China, all that persecution. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced that the church in China has grown way more because of persecution than it ever would if they had the freedom that, that we have. So that's not really the danger. But the danger has always been for God's people to get us to compromise, and then we defeat ourselves, and God's blessing is lifted, and then he uses other circumstances to discipline us, just like the children of Israel. It happened with them over and over again. So he finally gave in. After he tried to prophesy and speak evil against the children of Israel, he finally committed that uh, treason, or however you want to word it, against Israel by giving him the secret there. Verse 17. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in air. So he says, they're wells without water. When you're, when you're dying of thirst, and you're crawling up to a well, and then you put that thing down and you and it's just nothing but dirt i mean talk about the the feeling of of being you know destitute it's just you're you're these these men could have be they could be helping god's people and the, god's people need to be helped and they're starving and they're and they're they're needing to be fed but they're giving them lies when they're very very vulnerable and they're unstable they're clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. So talk about judgment that, that is coming. But notice he says, they speak great swelling words of emptiness. You ever heard anyone tell you that? <laughs> You're speaking great swelling words of emptiness. That's not a compliment there. <laughs> but they have great speech. You know, that's why Paul said, I didn't come with you and ex- come to you with excellence of speech. Because he knew that that only carried so much. What really needed to happen is him telling the truth that God had called him to say. But they have empty words. They have flattery. You know when someone's trying to flatter you, right? And trying to butter you up to get, you, get something from you. And they, they tell you what you want to hear. That's what the false prophets in Israel always did. Is tell Israel what they wanted to hear. And God rebuked them. And, and, and judged them, and that's exactly what's happening here. They allure through the lust of the flesh. They appeal to the lust of the flesh. When someone tells you if you give a dollar, you're going to get $1,000. If you make and you, if you sow into their ministry, what are they appealing to? Your flesh. You're wanting to be wealthy, so they're guaranteeing that if you sow into their ministry. And they're going to lay down on all the prayer requests. <laughs> and it's like that's going to mean something. And God's going to pronounce the hundredfold on, on you, on your life, and so forth. They're just ripping people off. And, 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 and God hates it. They appeal to the flesh through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped. These, notice, this is talking about believers. They're not just unbelievers. False teachers don't go after unbelievers usually. Not in mass anyway. They go after believers that are young in their faith, that don't know the word of God. That's who he's describing at the end of verse 18. The ones who have actually escaped, past tense, from those who live in error. They stumble those. And they promise, verse 19, them liberty. They themselves are slaves of corruption. So they say, yeah, you can be free if you follow my teaching, but they themselves are bound. They themselves are living a life, a double life. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. So they're preaching liberty, but if they're obeying what these teachers say, they end up, even though they were delivered from error, as we saw at the end of verse 18, they end up being put into bondage. Verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge 
of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They are again, notice the word again, entangled in them and overcome. That's a key word, overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. So he's saying that these false teachers, they knew the way. He uses the word gnosko in, in, in verse 20 and, and also in verse 21. Knowledge by experience. These false teachers at one point uh, had a, a relationship with God. And it's describing now that they are, have committed apostasy. Because notice he says overcome. That's the end. We always can repent and turn back to God. But if you die in that condition and you've rejected Christ, then you've apostatized. And that's what he's saying has happened. That's why he says it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. Again, that's gnosko. Known by experience. It had been better for them to not to know by experience the way of righteousness than having known it by experience to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then he says something we can all relate to. <laughs> Verse 22. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Those of us that have dogs have seen what dogs can do. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they pull that off. But they can eat something. It can make them sick to the point where they throw it up. They can have it stay there for a while, feel better, come back to it, and eat the very same thing again. It's disgusting. It's, I, I, I don't know how... I don't know how they do that, but they, they do it. And, and they, they've always done it, apparently. We can see that. But also, a, a, a pig, a sow, having washed in, in, to her wallowing in the mire. So pigs, they love to be dirty. You can wash them. They can get them sparkly clean, as much as a pig can possibly be sparkling. And they'll go right back to that mud, and they'll wallow in that disgusting slop that they roll around in. And this is such a vivid picture from God's perspective of what it's like when someone apostatizes. These false teachers going back. He's saying they would have been better to not ever known than what they're going to get because they've been overcome. And that's the key, the key verse. So God does and will judge. The illusion that people are getting away with it so they must, they're always going to get away with it, it's false. God is a God of love. But he's also a just God. And both of those things were expressed at the cross. He showed that he was all loving, but yet just at the same time. Having Jesus pay the penalty for our sins and allowing his son to be uh, mistreated like that is an expression of his love to us, but also expression of his justice because those sins were paid for. Those, those sins were punished. Someone received the punishment for those sins. So people out there in the world, they love to say God is a God of love. I could never believe in a God that judges and so forth. He would never do that. They don't know the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does judge. There will come a day when there's a great white throne judgment where unbelievers are resurrected. They actually receive a body for this. And when their, the, the Lamb's Book of Life is open, and when their name is not found in that book, they were, they'll be cast into the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. It says the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and ever. It's a conscious, eternal separation from God. God will judge and does judge sin. And we need to stand up for that. We need to remind people, God will judge you for your sin. Don't die in that condition. 
He will punish you for rejecting his son. He knows how to judge. He also knows how to deliver. He knows how to deliver. And we need to remember that. Even in in Revelation, the martyred saints, they ask the question related to God avenging, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those are, those, these are people that were martyred in the Great Tribulation. So they're wanting that justice, but they know that God will deliver, that God will deliver his whole, God's people all the way through to the end and be faithful, and he will, he will execute that judgment flawlessly and purposely. This passage is good for us because it reminds us how much God hates sin and how much God uh, hates disobedience in all of us. He hates when we disobey him. He hates that. He doesn't love it. He's gracious. He's patient. But he's still, the standard is still the standard related to sin. And this passage should produce, at least it should produce a sobriety in our hearts related to sin. And, and that he watches everything that I do. He assesses everything that I say, everything that I think, every motivation that I have. His standard is perfection. And if I fall short of that standard, then I haven't pleased him. So that means, practically speaking, for us believers, we fail every day. We fall short of perfection. But, but he's looking at us supremely from the standpoint of the righteousness of Christ having been put to our account. But that still should make us want to live a more holy life and a life that's pleasing to him. And he has all the resources. Peter told us in the last chapter, we have all the resources to live a life that's pleasing to him. He's given us his power and and all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us promises. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us the body of Christ on whom to depend, to to trust them and to help them uh, help us by being... uh, open and and transparent with our needs and our struggles so they can lift us up in prayer. It's so funny. We can be part of a body and yet still be independent and separate, even in a small fellowship as ours. And God says, take advantage of the body of Christ that I've put you around. Let them know what's going on. Let them pray for you. Let them be an encouragement to you. God wants to use them in your life. So no more flippant attitudes towards holiness and and, you know let that continue to leave us as we grow in our walk with the lord maybe change the channel when there's things going on we shouldn't see turn that thing off don't go to that movie don't listen to that whatever it is that you know is not pleasing turn it off and then if you need prayer call a brother or sister and say i need prayer i'm feeling weak because i'm i'm going this direction that's what the body of christ is for. I just love the clarity of his word. I love the potency of his word. I love that it doesn't it's never compromises. It's everything that we need to hear because he wants us to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And if we don't follow hard after him, that's at risk. We can get to heaven great, but we may not hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It requires us to be faithful. And he can help us along the way be faithful. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Lord, we want to live a different kind of life. Help us, Lord, to live more and more like you. We thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you that you forgive us of our sin every day, Lord. And we want to live a life that brings you glory. So help us. Use these verses. We thank you for the privilege of being changed into new 
creations.